Welcome to SelfDiscoveryWisdom.com, formerly known as SelfDiscovery Media. On these podcasts, you're going to hear people who speak from the heart. They've taken the journey in life. Many things have happened to them, but they've changed it to happening for them. And in their strength, their courage, they've discovered their abilities and their wisdom, and they are now sharing it here with you. Do enjoy each show. We bring it to you with love and knowing that it's going to help you on your journey of life. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of our Global Veterans, right here on selfdiscoverywisdom.com. I'm your host, Sarah uh, Troy, and my guest is Peter Michael Johnson. We're going to be talking about his new book, White Cloud Free. What does that mean? Well, he talks about his experiences in Africa and Latin America and helped mature Peter understand the love. How did that come about? Well, he set his book mostly in Latin America and it is a semi-autobiographical, what, sorry, hard to get my mouth around that word, tale of idealistic, naive Peace Corps volunteer who suffers a series of traumas abroad, leading to unlikely friendships at 23 Peter enlisted in the Peace Corps and finds himself teaching bookkeeping in a tiny village in Paraguay. When a a lich mob comes in and kills several people in his local village after a disagreement over harvest proceeds, Peter flees with his 12-year-old homeless friend in search of safety, taking him through an indigenous community, a Mononite colony, a squatter's camp, and finally the lawless, chaotic city of the Citadel, De Este, where he meets a kind, transcendent sex worker. Nearly two days later, a midlife crisis compels this protagonist to return to Paraguay and find that friend who had helped save his life so many years before. Through this journey, Peter discovers some hard truths of about himself, his faith, and the fluidity of memory. Quite a, quite a beginning there. Um, you know, going to whether it's Peace Corp or whatever, I mean, there's so much trouble in the world. You know, peace, you may go in, you want to hold the peace, but you're going to find the turmoil. And you never quite know what you're up against, do you? Because we know for sure that when people are in fear or in anger uh, or live in the hate rhetoric, that there is no clarity of mind. All there is is retaliation. And so how do you bring peace about to that? Welcome to the show, Peter. Well, thank you. It's a delight to have uh, to be here with you. So why the Peace Corps for a start? Well, I mean, I guess my reasons for joining the Peace Corps were quite different from the reasons I ended up staying and really uh, got a lot out of the experience. I was 22 years old. I had just graduated from college and I knew I didn't want a office job. You know, I knew I didn't want to go work a nine to five. Um, I had this sneaking suspicion that I was meant for something greater. I had a higher calling, but I wasn't mm. sure what it was. And it seemed like the Peace Corps did pretty good stuff. I didn't really know too much about it. I was an English major. And I think they, the Peace Corps sent me a postcard at some point and it said, would you be willing to do beekeeping? I said, yeah, why not? And so, so um, they immediately put me into that category of volunteer who's willing to check and say, why not? And uh, I became a bee, uh, beekeeper in rural Paraguay, teaching beekeeping to subsistence farmers for a uh, little over two years. Wow. And it was uh, an amazing 
really difficult but wonderful experience that uh, has really captivated my imagination since then. Mm. It kind of really humbles you, to, you know, when you're actually in the field, when you see how the how simply and honestly and humbly these people work and very often against, you know, the tinnery of what's going on around them. And it's, uh, you know, when you're coming from North America where we think we don't have enough and you go to places where, you know, every single day is a struggle, it really resets your whole thought process, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. Uh, for me, there, there's almost no starker contrast than uh, than New York City to Puna, Kazapau, Paraguay, which is where I was uh, located. And so, um, you know, I I didn't really have running water. Uh, mm -hmm. There was power somewhat, but, you know, it, not really any modern conveniences. Um, and when you say it was humbling, it certainly was. I thought I was bringing a lot to this community and I was going to be helping a lot, but I found I couldn't do the simple things. You know, I'd never okay. learned to wash my clothes by hand. I had okay. never learned to split firewood. Um, you know, just the basic necessities of life. Um, I had to relearn because, mm -hmm. you know, water, I didn't know how to get good water from a well and not get sick from it and stuff like that. So um, those were things that I'd, sort of had to learn from the natives and what I found was that uh, certainly in the beginning and then as time went on it almost felt like I was getting more from yeah. the indig indigenous people than I was giving to them which mm. was probably the big surprise and the big um the big thing that humbled me when I was there and you can't undo that it doesn't matter where you walk in life you know when you walk back into running water and, well, you know, washing machines and all the luxuries of life. Uh, you know, I'm sure through those lenses, you see life in a totally different way. Yeah, I, you know, you sort of, um, you, you certainly don't take them for granted mm. quite as much. Um, you know, I'm still uh, very close to a few people that I met there. Um, I met one desperately poor subsistence farmer who had four kids was about my age no shoes mm. um not too many teeth in his head <laughs> and he was desperate enough you know i think they were all a little suspicious of me why is this yeah you know, light-skinned guy from north america where we see tv you know it's really nice up there why would he come live with us mm. and they were sort of suspicious and this guy was desperate enough to put aside his his fears and he came to me and he said, I, I really want to learn how to keep bees. Can you teach me something? Mm. And he quickly became my best friend. And, uh, you know, we, we text each other and you sort of strips away all the minutia, the mundane things of daily yeah. life. And, and it centers you on what's important mm -hmm. in some ways, especially being in touch with him and being in touch with each other. We, we get a lot out of our relationship, but I just, you know, now now the smartphone revolution has come to Paraguay. Even rural subsistence farmers have a smartphone at this mm -hmm. point and connection to the Internet. So we're just on WhatsApp and we just send each other little words of encouragement. Or if we're not feeling encouraged, we commiserate mm. together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like this is what it means to be human. Yes. What it reminds me. You know, yeah. this is what it means to be a human being without the, all the trappings of culture that you mm. might have inherited 
or without all the trappings of modern technology, sort of like this is core to who we are and what is mm. what is in our hearts. And um, and we're going to celebrate that together. And we're going to connect together on that level regularly. And I think for him, you know, he's he makes bricks for a living now. He, you know, the, there's been a drought for a few years in Paraguay and he hasn't been able to produce any food. So he went across the border into Brazil and found a brick making sort of company. And he lives paycheck to paycheck, but yeah. it's better than going hungry, right? Yes. And we just text each other. And it's, you know, I'm living in my cushy life here in Naples, Florida, and it's a way different life. But I never take it for granted. And I think part of it is being in touch with this um, fellow Felix, who's uh, who's been very special. You kind of, when you look at the title, Peace Core, mm-hmm. you know, what is the core of peace, right? And that is connection. And it's connection from the very core, from, the, you know, the very, the very root of us. And it isn't the bells and the whistles. Um, it is where you connect really from heart and soul. And right. that kind of connection is the biggest enrichment than you could ever find in life. Um, yeah. But you obviously didn't know that's what you were going for. Uh, no. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the divine had a different plan for you. But you're there kind of peacefully teaching people how to, you know, uh, be a beekeeper and kind of immerse yourself in their culture and learn more from them, perhaps than the other way. But what suddenly went wrong? Well, for me, you know, um, the experience, my personal experience, I need to differentiate my personal experience from the novel itself. Yes. So the novel, many of the traumatic things that happened in the novel did happen to me personally, but maybe not in the way that they depicted in the, in the novel. Right. So I would say probably, you know, you mentioned that there was a, a lynch mob. That was maybe perhaps the most traumatic thing that mm-hmm. had happened to me while I was there. Um, you know, I was there for, I don't know, a few months. And um, the daily life in a rural village in Paraguay um, centers around crop cycles, right? And so there is a cycle for the, the, the main cash crop of my of my area, and that is uh, cotton. A mm-hmm. lot of people grow cotton, and it's, it's the old way of growing cotton. Nothing's mechanized. It's cotton mm-hmm. by hand. They're picking it by hand, and if you've ever seen how that's done, it's really long, hard work, and then, you know, a man from the city would come with a, a, a train of diesel trucks and haggle with the farmers and try to get a Good as deal cheap as on, possible. The, on the mm-hmm. cotton, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and that w- that was their yearly income. They were subsistence farmers, so they had enough to eat because they were growing most of their food. But in the end, this is the the main thing that they got their mm-hmm. money for all year long. Well, yeah. a lot of these farmers, and so they uh, the cotton harvest came. They sold their cotton. They were flush with cash. Uh. And about a week after the cotton harvest happened a carnival came to town and um, I'd been there just long enough to know that there was too much drinking going on at the Uh carnival. Uh And so I didn't go. Um, And also the men who are running it looked like a rough sort, you know, Um, 
questionable. They, they, they guns tucked into their belts and mm -hmm. uh, too much cane run, rum flowing yeah. easily. They came with, you know, carnival music and a few kiddie rides. But really the main source of attraction was a roulette wheel. Yeah. And they they had this roulette wheel with three of the, the national soccer teams of Paraguay, the three mm -hmm. most uh, famous soccer teams. And so instead of like a roulette wheel we might be accustomed to that's red and black, this had three mm -hmm. different um, possibilities. So you had a one in three chance of winning. So the, the farmers all promptly lost their money. I mean, no, I nobody won any end in a one in three shot. You know, you quickly lose that money. There's the odds just simply aren't in your favor. And so um, uh, it was over the course of three or four nights, I think. And they're blaring their music and I'm trying to go to sleep. And I've, I found this little hovel that I've tried to fix up in the center of town. And I'm, you know, can't get to sleep because they're blaring the music pretty close to me. And uh, one night, I think I start hearing what I think are fireworks. And then I hear the screams and I mm. hear people I know screaming and like screaming for their parents to come let them in the house and stuff like that. And it was uh, it's really chilling. And so... You know, I'm not there that long, and I think to myself, okay, what do I do? Um, I'm in my underwear. I'm, like, just woken up. Like, I'm, I wasn't sleeping, but I was in my bed, you know, trying right. to get to sleep. And so I'm, like, turn on the lights, and I grab my machete because I got a machete. <laughs> and I think, well, what am I going to do with a machete against somebody who's got a gun? And yeah. so I turn off the lights, and I'm, like, well, maybe they won't think that I'm here. And then I think well, what if they take refuge in my house? Because I'm, I don't know, 50 or 100 kilometers away, or not kilometers, uh, feet away mm -hmm. from the from the carnival. And so I go, okay, uh, I guess I'll sneak outside. So I sneak outside and I got my machete in my hand and I'm in my boxers and I just sit in the bushes for, I don't know, uh, tell there's not the, the gunfire and screams anymore. And it's, it probably wasn't that long, but it seemed like a really long time because mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on and I was really scared. And uh, I uh, ended up crawling to a friend's house and the rest of the story is even more chilling. Um, and of course, I was unaware of what happened the rest of the story. I had to like sort of find out afterwards. And this is, you know, fairly similar to what's reflected in the novel. Um that night, I guess the, the carnival workers had shot a couple of the guys who were shooting at them, but they mm. had actually hit them. And uh, they ended up uh, shooting and injuring a couple members of a, of a big family in the area. Mm -hmm. And uh, those people who got shot were rushed to this, the hospital in the city, which is like, you know, 50 kilometers away. And so... Uh, uh, that night, that family comes together and in mass confronts, there's, there's one police station in this village of 400 people and uh, there are two cops assigned to my oh, village. I guess what chance and they, they come have. To, they come to, come to the police, police headquarters building, which is just a tiny little mm -hmm. shack in the middle of town. They say, give us the carnival workers. The carnival workers at this point have taken shelter in the police station because they know they're in <laughs> yeah. trouble they're uh -huh. out and about and i guess the police are negotiating and at some point a couple of the members of the family sneak behind the house and shoot one of the carnival workers in the head and 
big drama. You had, you know, the equivalent of the district attorney of the zone coming in. The director of my Peace Corps, the agriculture mm -hmm. sector, the Peace Corps came out from the Capitol, which is, you know, nine hours away, um, made headlines in all the national papers. It was it was a it was a harrowing and, and scary deal. I didn't end up leaving the site and I, I guess they determined I wasn't at risk. I don't mm -hmm. I don't know how they worked that out in their minds, but um It was targeted, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. it was them against the the you know the carnival workers, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't mm -hmm. against me, and so you know it, that story is sort of reflected in there. And then there are a lot of other stories. There are stories of, like you said, uh, Mennonite colony and indigenous uh, folks and squatters camps. And I've had experience with all of those. And then, in fact, in the in the cities, the cities are full of sex workers and yeah. some transgender sex right. workers. And um, it's it's. It's a tough place to be when you're in a really poor and corrupt country and you want to escape that as somebody who's, you know, trapped in this, in these cycles of poverty and seeing it through the eyes of people I really cared about mm -hmm. was something that um, really stayed with me. And I, I've basically been writing about it ever since. I've been trying to write about mm -hmm. this, what it is, finding meaning in what I'd been through because it. It was it was painful and difficult and and some of it was was really joyful and there was the joy of connection and the joy of um, of ongoing relationship and the joy of maybe some some folks escaped some of the crushing poverty but um, very few right both. Mm -hmm. yeah and then, and where do they go because you know if they manage to make it to America then. It's a whole different thing against them, you know. The mm -hmm. not blue-eyed and white, you know. So, you know, it's yeah. a totally different target, and uh, um, and really, all people want is is a chance to grow, a chance to to you know achieve something in life, not live from paycheck to paycheck, not worry about the seasons or the weather changing or people coming in and taking their money, and um, you know, just everybody just wants to have that right at life and if, right. if you know some people want to travel or some people want to be able to have a lot of kids and provide for them you know it's it's just everybody wants that but it always seems to be that there's always the handful that are the ultra rich at the expense of the ultra poor mm -hmm. and the only way they're going to keep rich is by keeping them poor so mm -hmm. that equality you know of evening out is not in their interest and when it's not in their interest they're going to do everything they can to suppress and yeah. it's sad to see yeah for sure in these countries that are very corrupt that is the mm -hmm. case i mean there it is an un unfair playing field mm -hmm. for sure um you know there are unfair things in the states mm -hmm. but it's there's much more opportunity much more equity in the yeah. states than there are in some of these countries where you know, you bribe an official and you effectively have a monopoly on whatever sector yeah. of the economy you want to have. Right. And so Paraguay is one of the most corrupt countries in Latin America. So you've got I think they some estimates are 80 to 90 percent of the economy is black market yeah. because it's so corrupt. You know, they, they don't even bother to deal with officials. And there's yeah. a lot of pirating of goods and. That's where Ciudad del Este comes in. Ciudad del Este is in the tri-border area of Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. 
and um, it's fascinating. You go there and you see the Puente de Amistad. It's ironically named, you know, the friendship bridge from mm -hmm. Paraguay to uh, Brazil. And there's a sea, uh, a line. It almost looks like a line of ants marching mm -hmm. down the banks of the to the river where they meet boats marching up the bank. So they don't go over the bridge, the official bridge. And this is right under the nose of a Brazilian and Paraguayan officials. Mm -hmm. Huge packages over their heads. The, the, right. the people work as sacoleros. They're basically, you know, smugglers. And it's all pirated goods. It's all, it's all, you know, fake branded goods that are making their way. And who knows? I'm sure there's drugs and guns and all yeah, sorts you of name it. stuff yeah. that's going on. Well, well there's there. no, as you said, there's there's no checking the parcel up on the bridge. I don't know what's going on under the bridge. I don't see nothing. Right. <laughs> right? So, right. And exactly. he wouldn't be saying that, and he would not be seeing that if the hand hadn't been greased. So, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. I lived in South Africa for many years and my nephew has just had to leave South Africa purely from the basis of two to three hours a day of electricity. And oh, that comes about yeah. from since apartheid and the government being taken over, corruption, because that's what they knew and that's what they continue to do. There has been no updating of infrastructure um, mm -hmm. at all in over 20 years. And, and so many hands have been greased that literally there is no power now. And the country is just kind of going back into the dark age. And which, of course, what does that do? It breeds violence. And when, when yeah. you see the violence, you see even more um, you know, the bribing because money talks. And this is where money has the power, right? Yeah. When the people don't have which need mm -hmm. and the people that yeah. do have, you know, that's a, it's, it's a pity that we can't look at the, the bank account of a person's heart and soul as right. being the true e-commerce, um, yeah. but it's all about, you know, the green stuff. And uh, um, quite honestly, when that leads, when that's in power, everything is, everything mm -hmm. unravels. Everything unravels, so many yeah. people suffer. I think we've learned, at least in the United States over the last generation, that um, we want people to be free. We want countries to be free. But we need a sort of moral ecology where the mm. people are worthy of the freedom that we give yeah. them. Yeah. You know, we, we've seen plenty of transitions of power where it seems like the people are more free. And, and this is true in Paraguay. Paraguay is a perfect example. You know, there was a longstanding dictator. He had the second longest rule in Latin American history. Alfredo Strassner, a half German uh, megalomaniac who pushed people out of airplanes, did a bunch of terrible stuff, ruled with an iron fist from, I think, I want to say the 50s until 1989. So a long time. And when I was there, I was there post Strassner. You know, I was there a good 10 years after Strassner had been deposed. And, um, you know, people longed for Strassner days. And I didn't blame them. I saw it firsthand because yeah. there was no security. The corruption was so bad. Mm -hmm. They just... Even though Strassner ruled with an iron fist and they weren't as free, they wanted the security. Yeah. That's why. And you see that, you know, I think that's true in Iran or Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you wonder who wants the Taliban? Right. So people who are tired of a the month chaos. later, the Taliban are right back in there and the 20 years has been completely undone. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, it's people who are saying the chaos is too much. It's too dangerous. It's 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 not it's not fair. And. 
yeah, they rule with an iron fist, but I'll tell you what, you can leave your doors unlocked. And that's what I heard a lot in Paraguay. You know, yeah. I would talk to people about Strasbourg and I thought I knew, you know, I'd gone to NYU. I knew what <laughs> modern democracy looked like. And I would, uh, and I, I would talk to people about the Strassner days and expect to hear, oh, yeah, he was terrible and he pushed people out of airplanes and he had a secret police. And uh, all I heard from the rural Paraguayans who were subsistence farmers was how good life was then. He had built these hydroelectric dams along the rivers and sold electricity and used those subsidies to build infrastructure in the country. I was the the most help that they had ever gotten from the government. After he left power, they didn't get anything. Exactly. You know, it was all corruption. It was all sucked up into the rich families of the country and uh, privatized. And so... Uh, look at Brazil. I mean, he's selling the Amazon. Oh, which, absolutely. Which is the, yeah. you know, the core culture of the world. You know, mm -hmm. it not only holds the most cures for everything, but it it is needed to keep the balance ecologically of the world and he's selling it off because of course there's money in it and look at how many people are leaving you know brazil because they simply can't get food they can't get anything because it's just gone so right. utterly extreme and this is you know this is the imbalance of life right where where you were working you know hand in hand with people teaching them how to beekeep and just watching you know, the humbleness of every day getting out there and working, there was an honest living to it. And they mm -hmm. felt pride in what they did. And they, with what little they had, they shared. And they, the importance was, wasn't what they had, it's the fact that they had each other. Mm -hmm. Right? Again, that's where yeah. the e-commerce was, the each other. They knew the value of each other. When people don't have value in themselves or value for anyone else, money and power steps in. And becomes right. the value they seek, right? Which is yeah. a false solution. It doesn't matter how big they are or how rich they are. They will crumble yeah. and fall at some point. Case in mm -hmm. point, the carnival workers. How many people yeah. have they conned for so long? Right. 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 Um, a perfect example of that was my buddy Felix. Um, you know, I was, I had built a relationship at this point with him and I had, been out on his farm. We had gone to, out in the jungles and captured colonies of bees. And he had his his whole little beekeeping enterprise going. And and it was wonderful. And he was my best friend at this point. And I finally worked up the courage to talk to him about family planning, right? Because mm. I see him having all these kids and he's so poor. Uh -huh. I think, you know, I'm, and I even go, I get in the Peace Corps library. I go to the Peace Corps library. They have, I'm not trained to t talk about family planning with a, with a, with a subsistence farmer, you know, I'm a beekeeper. I don't know how to have this conversation, but they have, they have an illustrated book, you know, that I can use. I can sort of help him understand family planning. You know, forget it. Nobody's given him family planning. I mean, he, he went to a neighboring village and like found his wife and like married her at 16, you know, like uh -huh. it was, it was like nobody had any, had any birds and bees talk with him. Um, Plus, his dad had died when he was very young. So, you know, he just, he had had a hard life. And so I finally work up the courage to have this discussion with him. And I go, you know, it's just basic economics, Felix. Like, you're going to have more kids and they're going to be more expensive. And uh, it was just totally counterintuitive to him. To him, he was like, your kids are a blessing. We, 
are a blessing to each other. That's what we are. Every child is a blessing. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought about it that way because the West sort of teaches you the expense side, not the potential side of every child that you have. And it was just an, I mean, he was open to listening. I mean, he even said, well, I had no idea you could control the number of kids you you had. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. You know, yeah, how, exactly. how do you not know this? If you had four already. Like, come on, man. Where did they come um, from? <laughs> right, exactly. And so, uh, but, you know, he, it, it really, again, it was one of these times where he saw my perspective. And he was like, well, that's not quite how I look at it. And then I saw it from his perspective. And I thought, maybe the West has it wrong. Maybe kids should be seen for their potential. Maybe they shouldn't be seen for their expense, you yeah. know? Um, yes, back to I, I'm the saying dollar that within reason. Yeah. I'm saying that within reason, you know? Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying everyone should have, you know, 20 kids or anything, but um, I think we could use in the West a little more looking at people for their potential rather than their cost, you know? Yeah, I had a friend who had nine kids. And mm-hmm. when you would take those kids out, they were just so tight with each other. Now, it wasn't yeah. just a question of the older looking after the younger. They, they were tight with each other and everything that they did. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, I just, um, you know, how Facebook comes up with memories and it came up with a memory I post every time it comes up. And it's about a flock of sterling flying together in formation, mm-hmm. making beautiful shapes, going at incredible speeds, but, you know, close together. Well, that was mm-hmm. an individual choice to be a part of the collective, to be yeah. in sync with each other in order to fly together. And I think mm-hmm. when you have big families, that same succinctness is there. The attachment yeah. is there. It isn't about the material. It is about, mm-hmm. again, back to the value of, of heart, of spirit, of soul, and how right. they will fly together in any formation. Now, now and again, you have one that has is a free spirit that needs to break away. And they go off on their own journey. But it is that collectiveness that I think that in the West we miss a lot of. Um, I had three kids. Um, My daughter just has two. Um, My other two kids have none. So, you know, it's that generation of not having any. But it's when you look at what a child gives you. And it is unconditional love and joy and Mm -hmm. wonderment. And we start looking at life through their eyes. I think we see life totally differently. But yeah, in the West, we've been conditioned. Uh, how much money do you make? What's your house you live in? What do you drive? How do you dress? Right. Who are your friends? And that has become your value. And this is why we right. have so many empty souls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was, I think you struck the nail on the head. I When I went into the Peace Corps, I, uh, I might not have said I didn't believe in human souls, but mm. I probably would have not had any definition for it or any right. any use for the definition, you know? Um, so effectively, I, I didn't believe in it. And it's certainly not in the way Felix did. And uh, I think when I left the Peace Corps, I certainly cared about my soul. I cared about being connected to a higher power. I cared about faith. I cared about intuition in a way that my sort of radical materialist mm-hmm. academic NYU graduate self didn't relate sort of to. been school, schooled out, <laughs> yes. been schooled out of me. You know, yeah. if I had anything, maybe maybe some of the 
more eccentric flourishes of the literature I read, maybe I saw glimmers of that. But I didn't have any. Yeah. I knew how to write a paper about it. I, I certainly didn't have any personal experience. Yes. And um, and by the time I left, you know, I, I I did deeply care about my soul and I cared about the souls of others. And uh, and I like you, it, it, it fundamentally changed my mm-hmm. my uh, my perspective on on family. You know, I, I really I. Got married quick after leaving the Peace Corps, and I uh, probably had a dozen had, uh, kids yourself. I know, <laughs> I, know I, I know I have three kids. I don't have uh, I don't have Felix's eleven kids now. But, oh my uh, god! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I certainly is you know uh, the greatest blessing of my life is having those deep relationships, yes. uh, whether it's with Felix or my wife or my children. Um, and really um, being able to nurture those relationships and uh, and and connect on a on a deeper, less material level. Yes, I mean, let's face it. Money is important. It puts the roof over the head and food in the stomach and other necessities that we need to live. And when you see such extreme poverty, where a little extra money would make such a difference to the quality of their life. But right. we know that when it's a lot of extra money, suddenly it distorts the life because oh, absolutely. because now it's all about, you know, how many people have I interviewed that were the six, seven figure earners? And then Cosmic 2 by 4 came along and bottomed them out one way or the other through disease, this loss, whatever. And they had to kind of regrow, rebirth from the ground yeah. up. And they then stepped into something that had meaningful purpose. And that meaningful purpose gave them more in life than they had ever known before. And that that where they truly understood the commerce of life was doing something that you love, that comes Mm -hmm. from the heart and the soul and the spirit when it's of service to other people. And that, yes, money is good, but they look at money as a tool and not as as the be all end all value, Mm -hmm. which we really need to change that thinking because that thinking is what's destroying us. Yeah, it's a sort of uh, the difference between, like you said, a t- seeing money as a tool and seeing money as an idol. Unfortunately, I think we're created in such a way that if we choose not to worship a higher power, we're going to end up worshiping something. Um, I don't know too many people who don't worship something, and that that something else becomes uh, can often become an idol. And that you know, whether it's money, or power, or even freedom. You know, in, in the West, we, we seem to treat freedom like an idol. And, uh, and you know, it, my, in my experience, um, freedom to do what you ought is, is much, much more important than freedom to do what you want. Because what you want isn't always, you're not always... What you need. <laughs> um, it's not always the best, you know, nope. there we've got fickle feelings. Our feelings are pretty oh, yeah. fickle and, yes. and knowing, knowing what's good is, is a difficult thing. It, it seems readily apparent what good is and to do good. Like you said, a little bit of good with a little bit of money is good, but you, you think throwing a lot of money at it will just do better, but it doesn't, it doesn't no. end up translating that way. Yeah, it, uh, no. In a lot of cases it, it exacerbates the problem or fosters dependency or, you know, there are a million stories I could tell you about, uh, good intentions, mm-hmm. you know, disconnected from sound economics. And, and uh, 
ending up hurting the very people you uh, want to help. You know? And I think it's, it's you know, you don't throw money after something like just giving them money. It's like put money in an infrastructure that gives them security. Right. Um, there's a, a gentleman that I interviewed that went out. I can't remember the name of the country now, but his my wife was from there. So he decided to go and look. And it was a storm that kind of blew them onto this particular part of the island, part of the country. And they ended up in a monastery uh, looking for shelter where they had taken in numerous children because it was to do with the war. I'm afraid I can't remember the. There's so many walls around in the world, so I can't remember which one it was. But people, mm -hmm. they were they were either orphans or people were sending their children to the monastery right. for, for shelter. And they couldn't believe that they had nothing, you know, well right. water, nothing. And so they actually started an organization where the water was so pure that they would bottle the water and sell it to raise money. And then they mm -hmm. had volunteers and companies invest in education for the kids. So they got them a um, satellite dish with Wi-Fi. They got them computers. They got them education. And they gave them mm -hmm. some, and they also gave them something else, what they could generate as an income in order to sustain this orphanage yeah. monastery. And you see, that gives them dignity, gives them a sense of value, a sense of purpose, but a skill and a tool that they can take anywhere in life. And I think that's right. the importance. It's not just about throwing money in something. It's about building something that can create the jobs or create the education for the better Absolutely. jobs that can bring about stability to the family. And in North yeah. America, I have a, a book coming out with uh, an anthology of people with um, a Forgotten Children series of how in the way of we're raising our children is breeding dysfunctional adults and how we take children away from their families put them in foster care where they're abused instead of helping the families with yeah. counsel, with, with proper um, either education or shelter or jobs, and, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get to the core and the root of the problem instead of the constant right. band-aid. And so the whole shift needs to happen and yeah. extreme poverty needs to stop. But what we need to do is give them the respect and the dignity of investing Mm -hmm. in their countries, their cultures, their cities, their villages, Absolutely. their towns, so that they can create for themselves. Yeah. The, you're, uh, you're, you're really uh, succinctly summarizing the, the great rabbi Maimonides, who has this, it's called, called Maimonides' Ladder. I, if you've never heard of it, I mm -hmm. encourage you to look it up, but it's, it's a ladder of the types of charity people can give, the Monides ladder. And the lowest level is a reluctant heart of a donor and uh, a sort of uh, resentful heart of a recipient. And they know yeah. each other and sort of that's, but the highest level, which is what you were getting at, the highest level of charity is he, he brings up, and this is, you know, this is a medieval scholar. This is amazing mm -hmm. that he thought of this. You know, a medieval Jewish scholar. He said the highest level of charity is when you create a context mm -hmm. for the recipient by which they can get out of the situation, the poverty situation, or yes. the situation themselves. Yeah. Create a job, create a community with a safety net where you, as the creator of this context, business, community, you as the creator of this, have no idea who the recipient is. Yeah. So a lot, I mean, a big part of what he's focusing on is sort of this idea that a lot of people give because they want to, they want the feeling 
feeling yeah. good. Oh, and oh they, no, they I, see, I, they I give see my consciousness clear. Yes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's sort of saying, <laughs> he's saying the most virtuous type of giving is when you don't even know who the recipient is, yeah. you're creating a context by which you are helping people. Yes. And, and of their own agency are helping themselves. Yes. And that is... Respecting I mean, that's really, it's really hard to do, right? How to dignify the recipients rather yes. than making them an object of your pity. You're right, sort of, making them feel small and insignificant. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of creating a conduct, context by which they could become the subject of their own story of development and their own agency. And that's what dignifies them is when they do it themselves, right? Yes. And, you know, the thing is, is that when we look at people, as the wealth, they themselves are the wealth in their skills or in, in their gifts, in who they are and what they share and what they're capable of doing, then right. why are we not supporting that financially in a way that they can keep sharing their gift to benefit others while sustaining themselves? You know, I think one of the I'm very big on heart and soul, as you may have noticed, because it's been mentioned all the way through. One of the big problems is we have troubled, broken hearts. They're jaded. They don't trust anymore. Um, yeah. Everybody's seeking kind of Absolutely. love and validation or or something that's meaningful. But, you know, we don't quite trust it because there's so much corruption and con and distrust out there. And the thing is that in our own vulnerability of opening up our heart, from the truth from the inside out, allowing that consciousness, that beautiful universal wisdom and consciousness to come through us, it resonates in our heart in truth. So our heart is open in that truth. It's given to right. our spirit to get into action. And our mind is very, very clear in what it needs to know and what it needs to do in that moment. Mm -hmm. But we're so bombarded with the exterior that we're not hearing right. the interior of us. And when you look at people that are on the poverty line it is about putting the food on the table it is about that laughter of the family around the table the joy mm -hmm. that they have found within each other who's rich the people poor at the table who are grateful for every crumb and each other or the people with the million dollars in the bank and they're not at the table because they're rushing off to this event that event this event and there's no connection with their family whatsoever right right absolutely yeah, I think, you know, when, when we started this conversation, I don't know how we got right to the nub of it, but it's really, it's really seeing people. And, and my wife is a sort of an educator. That's mm -hmm. her calling. Like she is yeah. just amazing at it. She's been in education pretty much her whole life and career. And the reason she's so gifted at teaching students is because she sees them for their potential, yes. not their deficits, which is... Yes. Which is really counterintuitive because we in the West have learned teacher knowledge knows things is giving the kids who don't know things who have the deficits. Yeah. You know, it's sort of teaching them. But really, it's about a relationship. It's about the teacher learning from the students and the students learning yes. from the teacher. And yes. it's a reciprocal, it's yes. a reciprocity that happens. Um, sort of, sort of shakes up all hierarchies, but that's yeah. where, that's where the magic happens, where, where it's no longer, a transactional relationship. It's a relationship. Which, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. a transformational. Yes. Both 100%. parties mm -hmm. are being transformed rather than engaging in some sort of uh, transaction. Because that transaction 
necessarily limits the yeah. potential of that what that relationship could be. Oh god, you really hit you hit a core here with me now because um uh I I ran into this not only in myself because I had learning disabilities and that just considered quite honestly back in those days dumb. Right, never will amount to right. anything because I'm I'm sure. uneducated. I left school early, and it's because I had learning disabilities that nobody knew about in those days, and uh, sure. I couldn't learn the way they taught. But I could mm -hmm. sit down with a teacher and have hours of conversation and philosophy and everything else, where they would see right. an intellect in me that was beyond the books. Right. But it, the books I couldn't relate to, right? I couldn't learn. Mm -hmm. Now, turn to page such and such because it, I couldn't relate to it. Um, nowadays, um, I've spoken to so many people who have autism or children with autism, and we're looking at a brilliance in our autistic children, our autistic people, where they are so utterly focused in on what they're capable of doing. And what they are is very, very selective of who's around them. So it isn't right. about the fame, the glory, the money. It's about what they're capable of doing and the passion and the focus for that. Mm -hmm. And if it was seeing more and more of autistic people on the spectrum out there, because I think in all honesty, that's the way we need to go. We're so busy trying to be everything to everyone. We're being nothing to no one, including ourselves. Right, right. Yeah, I think, um, you know, seeing outside of traditional uh, uh, paths for learning, traditional paths for what is a strength and what is a deficit is really important. I think that's important for cross-cultural understanding, like somebody, some American who goes to Paraguay, but it's the same for a teacher with a class full of students. Yes. I mean, what you need to do is you need to think about how the relationships that you're building in whatever mm. context you're in are bringing strengths into into the, the the context of your relationship. So you you need to be thinking. You know, it may not seem like it, and and that's really what my novel's all about. Is like you see these desperately poor people that are in the village, and you build these relationships, and you think that they have nothing, and they only want just a little bit of your economic understanding or your trades understanding yeah. or your worldview understanding. And, and the truth is they're bringing a lot of wisdom, a lot of yes. inherited wisdom from yes. their, their ancestors, their community, their experience. And their connection, their, their connection their to, to earth and spirit as well. Yes. Right. It's, uh, it's like my, one of my favorite writers is uh, Flannery O'Connor and she, she wrote, uh, something along, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something like, if you can survive childhood, you have enough fodder for the rest of your yes. writing career. <laughs> the truth is, your experience, whether you have a terrible experience, like a 12-year-old semi-homeless kid like that I met while I was in the mm -hmm. Peace Corps, or you're a well-to-do, you know, suburban kid from the United States, both of them bring a wealth of experience that are strengths to whatever context of relationship that they're in. And so, and and seeing those and being able to identify those, I think are are really important to ensure that you're not limiting. Those right, Trevor Noah, uh, one of my favorites because I just love his deep. You know, he's a comedian, but like when he's sure. one of the most balanced people in thought mm -hmm. that you can listen to. And he was being interviewed by Jay Shetty, and he was talking mm -hmm. about experience, and he said. 
you may not enjoy the experience of life, but the benefits of who you become is what you do enjoy. So sometimes we get very rough journeys and we're going through very rough experiences. It's who we choose to become because of it. How, what have we learned from it? Where's our strength, our courage, our abilities? How do we decide to feed those possibilities instead of give in to the trauma? And that is right. all a, a choice. And those that choose to go through it and come out at the other end, their depth of knowledge and understanding and stepped into mm -hmm. meaningful purpose is something they would never ever get in an education. It had to be a life right. experience. Absolutely. Yeah, one of my other favorite writers is Viktor Frankl, as you probably know, and he's he's got this famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a Holocaust survivor, and I, nobody wishes a Holocaust survivor's tale on anybody, but um, his broader point was, you know, even in the depths of despair, the human person, we are built in such a way to derive meaning from our mm. experience. And that yes. meaning is, you know, is what's so important in mm -hmm. is that that meaning that we derive from it. It's, it's what makes us human, what separates us from, you know, some of the lower creatures of our world. You know, right. like they, we are we are we are given some gift, some we are. I mean, I, whatever you want to, to call be it, able, <laughs> to be able to right, whatever you want to call it, to be able to derive meaning from even these terrible, terrible circumstances. Yes. And um, on the reverse, you know, you may not wish, you know, terribleness on anybody, but, you know, somebody's had a, a maybe pretty, pretty good life and pretty sheltered life. Um, one of my favorite things about fiction in general is it takes the mundane. Yes. And makes it makes it wonderful. Yes. Makes it like full of wonder, you know, yes, literally yes, full yes. of wonder so that you can look at your life in a way in such a way that. You know, one thing that I have in my novel that I that I love is 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 that you know I, I talk about campy Latin American soap opera, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I derive yes. a bunch of meaning from that deeper meaning. And nobody's yeah. looking at this soap opera that I'm talking about is Pedro Escamoso, which is like a ridiculous, you know, it's about this Colombian Lothario that's mm -hmm. like going around Latin America, has a silly dance. People people still joke about it. It, mm -hmm. it was 20 years ago that it was on TV and. Uh, and that's what I'm talking about. Ta taking something even from pop culture, sort of campy, yeah. kind of ridiculous and finding a deeper meaning in it, and finding a way to connect with other human beings on a deeper level, I think, is is what makes our shelter, maybe something what boring life amazing. Well, it helps and us look at life from a different point of view. Oh, absolutely. Right? You know, maybe yeah. campy, maybe this and that. It's, it's like when you read a book and you question yourself afterwards, what would I do in that situation? Could I do that? Could I have done that? Gosh, mm -hmm. you know, I feel I'm the hero of this story, you know? And that's the thing is when you can have a conversation with self after putting a book down, then I feel it's one that's really fed you. When you've watched a good movie, when you've watched some, you know, a TV show that may be just stupid and you've laughed, but at the end of it, you go, you know, there was a real point to that. As silly as it right. was, there was a real point to that. And we're mm -hmm. so busy looking for the meaning of life elsewhere. We're not paying attention to it really being right at our fingertips, be it on the internet, through podcasting, TED Talks, books, movies, shows, experience of life. If we right. stop chasing it on the outside and look at all mm -hmm. these, these things as feeding us, 
as being a lesson right. learned through the experience of others. That's what my podcast is mm -hmm. all about. You're sharing your experiences, your journey, and how it yeah. changed you. People listening to it and go, I may have not gone to Paraguay, but I did this. And yes, it changed me. Or I'm thinking of doing something. I need a change in my life. And maybe right. I do need to go to the other extreme to reset myself, to truly mm -hmm. understand what life means to me. We have no idea what our stories are going to do or how they're going to inspire right. people. But that's the whole beauty of storytelling. Back to the beautiful word that you said, wonderment. Mm -hmm. staying in yeah. wonder because that's the excitement of life i wonder what's around the corner mm -hmm. yeah something i've i learned later and I, it's been later in my life as i've moved along and i've gotten more contemplative about my life and started listening more to my life is the trick is to be present yes. in those moments yes to be truly present and a lot of modern life, you're thinking about the future or the past. I don't know why we're constantly conditioned for our calendars or, yes. or regrets or right. maybe not even regrets. It could be triumphs, but you're sort of living in the past or the future. And in order to really reap the benefits of finding that wonderment in that moment, in that stupid TV show or mm -hmm. in the dumb question from your neighbor or in the silly way your pet is acting. Yes. Be truly present in that moment. And that's, yes. that's harder than it seems, I guess, I know. in America. It's, yes. it's not so hard when you're struggling in poverty because every moment is about struggling yeah. for survival and you're yes. in the moment. Yes. Um, but as we've gotten more comfortable and mm. richer in the society, complacent. <laughs> I think we've gotten out of the moment, yeah. a lot of us. Yeah. And and for me, I've had to go into sort of more contemplative prayer and really set aside time to connect, get myself to the place where I am living in the moment. Yeah. And I'm not elsewhere in my mind, you know. Right. Well, the gift of the present is in the now. Right. Right. And, you know, this, yes, you know, the seeds that you're planting today uh, you know, oh, here's what's going to be growing tomorrow. So what kind of seeds are you planting? Are you watering, nurturing them? And so that tomorrow will be a growth that you can greet with open arms. But we've yeah. got to understand that if we choose to live in pain and anguish, now, there isn't anybody that doesn't go through some sort of trauma or, or struggle in life, right? Mm -hmm. But we could choose whether we're going to stay there on whether right. we're going to learn from it and discover our own courage and our own strengths. And that goes back to what are we feeding? Am I feeding right. the pain, the, the victimization, or am I feeding the illumination that I've got from mm -hmm. it, the discovery that I've got from it? And where you can look, I mean, I've, I've got people who will share stories that you, you hear that is like, how can any other human being do that to someone? Right. How could they even be here talking to us today and have stepped into what they're doing and helping others when right. what was happened to them is because they chose to. Yeah. And doesn't mean yeah. that it wasn't difficult. It doesn't mean that they didn't struggle or that they're still not struggling, but they still mm -hmm. choose to feed the possibilities rather than right. the pain and the anguish. Yeah. For me, one struggle I've had for many years and I still struggle is sort of this, 
worldview of radical materialism. Mm. You know, I will work out almost every day for my body because my muscles are apparent to me, right? I've, yes. got, I've got muscles, but the mind is a muscle. Yes. It's a thing that I have trouble remembering and, and being disciplined about. So when I say, you know, I work out you know, almost every day, I... I sometimes don't make time to work out the mental muscle right. in my head and to get into the place where I can be present. And like you said, watering mm. that or being being in a place where I am growing in presentness yes. and being in the present at all times throughout my day. I mean, that is like that seed. I'm That's what I'm doing when I'm doing my mindfulness time. Yeah. I'm planting that seed and I'm watering it because some point something amazing and sublime gonna is going to happen yes. and uh, I don't want to miss it right no miss it. no <laughs> yeah. if you're not and present so, it's gone by you missed it <laughs> but I have to remember that the mind's a muscle as much as the yes. body has yeah. muscle and um but so is the heart really and so always, is the soul it's so in the spirit that it all has its intellect yeah. and we have to include it in the conversation right yeah mm-hmm. yeah and I think this is the thing. It's very easy. You know, I'm I'm in Canada, you're in America, but it's very easy to get caught up in the expectation and these shoulds and you have to of life that's being given to us. And we know when when we've stepped out of it and we look at life from the outside in, we go, no, everybody's envious of these North American mm-hmm. countries where everybody can have everything. But don't you realize you already have everything? It's within you. And yeah. when you embrace the heart, soul, and spirit of you, and that Gus, God, universe, spirit, or energy, whatever you wish to call it, coming through you, you'll realize that, you know, you're a divine spirit having a human experience. So when you put the two together, that human experience can be extraordinary, even in its right. struggles. And this mm-hmm. easy way out of buying us happiness has left mm-hmm. us empty and wanton. And we have, it's like... Um, it's like somebody who a nutritionist once saying, it doesn't matter if a person's 300 pounds, they could still die from malnutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, absolutely. you know, malnutrition of the soul and the heart and the spirit, because we're so busy feeding the expectation that more, more, more will make us happy instead right. of that connection to the abundance that's already within. Absolutely. And that's the power of having a sort of international experience. Yeah. Um, yes. Again, you strip away all the pretense, all yeah. the cultural sort of um, trappings. Mm-hmm. And you say, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to, to, to be in community? What does it mean to succeed? What does growth mean? I mean, yeah. when you take out yourself outside of the context of your own culture, um, you're going to find some things transfer to humans across the globe and other things don't. And I'm not saying those things aren't good or fine for our culture, but um, you'll know what your priorities are. Yes. And and I think that probably the greatest gift you gave yourself was saying, yes, I'll I'll go be the beekeeper, even though you like, you didn't know anything about it, but that willingness to not let that get in your way. Well, I guess I can learn. Right. But let's go for the experience and look at the gift that it gave you because it reset the way you looked at life and valued life and the way you conduct your life today. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
I've never looked at my starry-eyed naivete as a gift, but I think you're yeah. right. It sure was. Yes. And I think that's that willingness to, to you know, we say that the, the biggest leap in life is the first step. And to understand that what we can do is put our experience and our wisdom and our skills and tools in our backpack, but walk forward in wonderment of the unknown, not the fear of it. Because with the experiences and the skills and tools that we've acquired, whatever we meet, we'll know what to do. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you're not willing to be adventurous and walk forward and explore, how are you ever going to discover what really it's all about? That's right. Yeah. So courage. Courage is a big lesson, and uh, and maybe a na- little naivete will help that courage out. So yeah, because you you don't know enough to talk yourself out of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I think you know, I think that naivete, that innocence, but I think that sense of wonderment. You know, you've got three kids. I've got three kids now and two grandkids. But as I look at the two grandkids, one's twenty-eight months old, and I look at the way he plays. And the way he explores and the way he does things. And it's like, you know, he's, I just want to know what's going on in your mind. And I'm seeing his eyebrows go up and this conversation that's going on internally in his head. And it's wonderful to see. And I don't want anybody to come along and say, well, now you've got to conform and go into this box. And you can't live in your wonderment anymore. Because grandma's got to keep that wonderment going to hell or high water. (laughs) Because I think that's... America was founded by explorers. Exactly. And and I think the greatest literature connects you with something sublime, something beautiful and beyond yourself. Yeah. I think that that's, um, you know, my wife would say, keep those kids reading books because yes. it charges up their imagination and, uh, 100% and put them in a, in a space where they can... They they can explore they can their own possibilities. things. Yeah, yeah. They can see wonder things, wonderful things in their own life. Yeah. Why did you call it white cloud free? Comes from in a 1789 William Blake poem. William Blake was this sort of eccentric poet. Uh, I think he was British, and uh, he wrote the songs of innocence and experience. And he's got this wonderful. A poem called The Little Black Boy, which encapsulates to me a sort of, and this was 1789, so this was before colonialism was a bad word. It was sort of this idea that he was seeing, even in those early days of colonialism, that when the British people were encountering these dark-skinned people, it wasn't, like we've been talking about, it wasn't just a morally deficient people with a morally superior people. What he was Mm -hmm. finding was that in a lot of cases, the dark skinned people had a, had a, had a moral superiority or maybe not a superiority, but they had things to offer in a value and a moral sense Mm -hmm. that were unexpected. And it sort of complicated Mm -hmm. the view of what they were doing around the world at the time. And he just wrote this, this poem about that. And, um, can I read a little you, bit of it? Please. My favorite stanza? Yes. Okay. So this is my favorite line. I'll start with my favorite line. Um, and we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. Man, I love bear it. I love that line. Okay, <laughs> but I'll go on. And these black bodies and this sunburnt face is but a cloud and like a shitty grove. For when our souls have learned the heat to bear, 
The cloud will vanish, we shall hear his voice, saying, Come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent like lambs rejoice. Thus did my mother say and kiss me, and thus I say to little English boy, When I from black and he from white cloud free, and round the tent of God like lambs we joy. Um, then he goes, this is the conclusion of it. He says, uh, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear. He'll lean in joy upon our father's knee. And then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair and be like him. And he will then love me. And uh, it's just, to me, it's a poem about my experience in Paraguay with a semi-homeless 12-year-old boy who profoundly affected my life. Yeah. And uh, I found it, I discovered it one day, and I said, gosh, William Blake in 1789 is writing about my life. Right. Amazing. Well, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, although you came over with your um, your intellect and your, uh, you know, North American perception, what you met was much like the end of that poem of the unexpected. And it wasn't you bringing your wisdom. It was you learning wisdom and right. uh, that when put together, really and then sharing. makes sense. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And sharing. I mean, uh, my little friend, Eden, who I write a little bit about in the, in the, um, in the novel, uh, he, he, uh, he loved Eric Clapton. And Tupac Shakur, <laughs> and he loved um, uh, American. He loved Chuck Norris, <laughs> and he loved Baywatch. He loved American things, yes. and would say, "Oh, do you know Chuck Norris?" And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> I, I don't know Chuck Norris. I'm sorry to sorry to inform you, but um, you know, he uh, he had a simplicity together, of joy. Yeah, together our relationship, we 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 drew from a wisdom that that was outside of ourselves. Right. You know, together we drew from that wisdom and um, sort of what the novel's about, drawing right. from that wisdom. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for writing such a book because it is certainly needed. And yes, one can hear the, the adventurism, et cetera, of the story, but the depth of really what, what it's all about is connection. And where does true connection come from? It's when the heart and soul is ignited when we share the spirit yeah. and that's where we yeah. truly see the real enrichment the real e-commerce of life that's where we see the true value of the meaning of life is in that connection no matter where it is and if we can yeah. get out of this facade and illusion that more mm -hmm. is more and go back to that humility from heart and soul and mm -hmm. look at each other from the inside out i think we're truly really see the abundance where it really lies and it's not mm -hmm. in the bank account yes absolutely so how do people get hold of your book and how do they get hold of you so the easiest way to do both is to go to petermichaeljohnson.com that's my website and i've got links to all the places where you can buy the book you the easiest place appears to be barnesandnoble.com right now so you can go to barnesandnoble.com there's an ebook there's a paperback that's available. Uh, Amazon has been touch and go. So sometimes it's on Amazon. Sometimes it shows that it's unavailable. And I'm not exactly sure why that is. Um, Weird. And yes. I've got a few, a few other sites, Apple Books and others where it's available as well. Um, and then you can also get in touch with me through my website as well. There's a way you can uh, 
contact me through the website and uh, you can see some more of my writing and I'll probably post this interview up there and other interviews that I have. So um, yeah, so it's a way to keep in touch with me and uh, figure out where to, where to purchase my book. Wonderful. And of course you're on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok under Pete.MichaelJohnson and uh, under TikTok Peter Johnson 5533 so people can get hold watch you follow you there and i think Absolutely. you know it's it's wonderful really it's the moral of the story where really it is about true connection true value of life you know comes from the inside out and it doesn't matter what the intellect knows how can the intellect empower somebody else uh true core and true value of who they are how can it help them have a better life and it isn't about lording over the knowledge i'm more superior because i have this education and you don't well i have the education of life i have the education of land and sky Mm -hmm. and if we're willing i think the best teachers are those that learn from their students and Mm -hmm. if we're if we're willing to learn from one another instead of this illusion of hierarchy, you know, we then we then truly can see the possibilities and the opportunities where things can grow that benefit everyone. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's that's great. That's it. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been absolutely great. And uh, thank you for taking your story. I think this is, you know, people put their kids in the army or the navy or they go and do that for to have that travel in life. But the Peace Corp is a you know a whole show different but, but just saying yes why not why not let's go yeah. be a beekeeper why not and i think that more and more and i think this generation more and more is uh um kind of looking for some sort of meaning and some sort of reason of value would make sense out of life and i think doing this type of thing is the kind of thing that uh could really bring them home to really what matters Right. Well, I'm I'm very uh, grateful for you having me on your program, and this has been a true pleasure for me. And uh, and I agree, Peace Corps is a is a great experience. It's not for everybody, right? You know, you, you have to live uh, a little rough sometimes, but um, you're open to new experiences and uh, and uh, and want to find some deeper meaning and deeper connections. It's a great way to do that. Yeah. Exactly. And if not that, find something else. But be willing to step out of your comfort zone and think this is all and be willing to take that soul heart spirit journey because that's truly where the meaning of life is. So thank you so much, Peter. And to everyone else out there, we'll catch you next time. We hope that you enjoyed the show. There are so many more for you here on selfdiscoverywisdom.com. Just go to the podcast tag at the top there and you will see all the many genres and all 3,000 shows ready for your listening. We are here to serve you, to help you on your journey of life. And we know that through inspiration, it begets invitation. We are supported by you, the listeners, and those that we interview. Anything that you can spare us in donation would be greatly accepted. And we do hope that you enjoy the next show.